Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, reading from Matthew 16, verses 13 to 17. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So who do you say that I am? That may be the key question that we all face. It's the key question, I think, of Scripture. And answering this question is determinative of our understanding of the world, of ourselves, and beyond this, it's the question of Scripture. The identity of Christ is the unifying point of Scripture answering this question and brings together the Old Testament with the New Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures with the New Testament. But this identity is synonymous with the presence of Christ in the reader or believer. That is, answering this question is going to determine, is God with you? It's a question that reflects salvation, how you answer it, reflecting the work of God in the believer. As Jesus says to Peter, this is not revealed by flesh and blood, but my Father in heaven. That is, Christ's identity pertains directly to the one doing the identifying. That we are caught up in this identification. His identity entails his presence and God's presence in the life of the one answering the question. Christ's life and presence, you know, he is the son of his father, are rendered in his identity... And this identifying realization is through the Spirit. Now this entails a bit of circularity. That is, it's reading Scripture through the Gospel. You know, the Gospel is how we answer. Who are you? Who do you say that I am? The Gospel is the identity of Christ. And we read Scripture through the Gospel and the Gospel through Scripture. It revolves, though, around Christ. And it includes the life of the believer as it does so. Maybe we could say it's on the order, it's circular, but it's on the order of the circulatory system of the body. And what is circulated is the life and presence of the one around whom it revolves. We read through the lens of the identity of Christ, but this exegesis of and through Christ pertains directly to the you, to the one doing the exegesis. You know, this constitutes the encounter with Christ. So we could say that the hermeneutical lens of the apostolic preaching, you know, we've talked about 
the gospel, another way of talking about the gospel, it's the rule of faith, it's the analogy of faith, the apostolic preaching. It not only produces a symbolic coherence, you know, it brings together the types and tropes and context of the Hebrew scriptures in Christ, that suddenly scripture comes alive. It's unveiled, according to Paul, in Christ. As applied to scripture, though, it concerns the exegesis of Christ. That is, our main concern is not really the exegesis of scripture, but it's exegeting Christ, the encounter with Christ, or the presence of Christ in the life of the exegete. The wrong answer, you know, falls short. And we have a series of wrong answers. Some say you're John the Baptist. Well, John the Baptist was a martyr. Is Jesus simply a martyr? John the Baptist was a great prophet, the greatest. But is Jesus simply a prophet? Some say he's Elijah. Elijah was a miracle worker. And we know Jesus worked many miracles, but is this the identity of Jesus? Some say you're Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah was the weeping prophet. It says in Jeremiah 1.10 that he has been set over the kingdoms and nations. Well, certainly Jesus weeps, and we know that he's destined to reign. But is this his identity? I think not. Jesus is not merely one of the prophets, nor is he simply the fulfillment of prophecy. So in Peter's answer, we understand he's not the ghost of a dead man. You know, that's kind of what they seem to be thinking. He's not the reincarnation of someone. He is the son of the living God. And this describes the nature of authority, of his authority, the authority of scripture, as it takes hold through the identity of Christ in the life of the believer. The author, the authorization, the authority is immediately present in the one answering, who do you say that I am? God authors the answer to the question. That's what Jesus is saying. It's not simply an historical judgment. It's not simply a critical assessment, you know, a set of texts, uh, or it's not an acknowledgement of some sort of institutional authority. That is, I believe we've confused the authority of history. We've confused the authority of scripture. We've confused the authority of the church as if that's primary. These all pertain indirectly to the fundamental and primary authority found in the identity of Christ, as this directly pertains to the believer. Who do you say that I am? The particular nature of the presence of Christ in the believer, certainly it's mediated through the Christ of history. It's mediated through the Christ of scripture, mediated through the Christ of the church, but these are not substitutes or alternative authorities but the authority derived from the gospel, which immediately takes hold in Christ's presence in the believer. So if Peter had answered, as many would today, oh, why, you are Jesus of Nazareth. And then if he had recounted all the facts of his life, you know, even imagining this in his post-resurrection, if he had said, 
even up to, well, you died and you raised again, it's still not the issue. It's not the heart of it. To place the primary authority in history or the historical truth of the gospel may imagine a Christ subject to history rather than history subject to and relativized by Christ. Now certainly there is no extracting Christ's death, Christ's resurrection from history. This history is part of his identity, but his identity is determinative of this history and not vice versa. Temporality, the past, the situation of his life, does not take precedence over his life or determine his identity. That is in the historical critical understanding. It's all about history. But the main thing is about the gospel. There is a history of Christ in which time and history and humanity, they're interwoven. They're actually inseparable from the person of Jesus Christ encountered in the gospel. But the history per se is not primary. The truth of his history, certainly it's a necessity. But this historical truth is not the fullness of the truth, as it takes hold in the life of the believer. Who do you say that I am? History, and even the history of Christ, is not the presence of Christ found in his identity when we answer that question. Many Christians today might answer the question by saying, well, you are Jesus, predicted and written about in the Bible. But the same thing holds true with Scripture. To place primary authority on the text or the book may miss that its authority is derived from Christ. The authority is in God. The authority is in Christ. Christ is not subject to Scripture any more than he is subject to the church or to history. Where scripture is made primary, Christ may be made to fit the context and circumstance of its writing rather than the other way around. We understand scripture through Christ. Christ is the unifying center, the very hypothesis, the rule of faith, the gospel of scripture. And the reality of his life, death, and resurrection precedes scripture in both the Old and the New Testament. That is, the lamb sacrificed from the foundation of the world is really there throughout the Old Testament. Christ and scripture are no more separable than Christ and history. We can't separate them. But it is Christ and his identity that constitutes scripture as an authority. Now what if Peter had said, why Jesus, you're the head of the church. Well, the same thing with the church, to place primary authority in the institution, in the hierarchy, or in the body of believers, may be to miss that the church derives its authority from Christ. Life in the body is constituted by Christ and the identity of Christ, located in the apostolic preaching. This preaching cannot be separated from the church, certainly, any more than it can be separated from Scripture and history. So, too, with this authority to make the church the authority, 
will be to miss the immediate import of Christ's identity. Who do you say that I am? You're the one answering the question. The apostles and the church do not determine Christ, but are determined by him. Christ cannot be made to fit the authority of the church, as the church derives its authority from who he is. You know, this is the story of one apostle corrects another apostle. Paul rebukes Peter when he comes to Antioch and he refuses to eat with Gentiles. Paul goes to the Jerusalem council and says, you guys need to rethink this whole Gentile thing again. It's not because Paul is more authoritative or that Peter is more authoritative. It's because the apostles and the church, they're authoritative only through the gospel and through maintaining the apostolic tradition. So even the apostles are subject to the authority of the apostolic preaching, the apostolic understanding. Who do you say that I am? It's not a question, certainly, to be answered apart from history, apart from scripture in the church, but none of these are themselves the answer. The question demands that you answer. And the answer and its power and presence take hold within the same you. That's where the authority resides. It's an immediate authority in your life. So historicism, biblicism, institutionalism, they're all a misconstruing of the nature of authority and truth, and thus they misidentify Christ and they misplace his presence. The believer does not have a primary relation with history. We don't have a primary relation with scripture, nor is it that we have a primary relationship even with the church. We have a primary relationship with Christ. He is present in his identity, but no one but a you, a person, an individual, concludes to the presence and relationship of this identity. Now, you may just dismiss all this, say, well, you're just talking in circles. But at the heart of this circular, admittedly circular reason is the singular truth, and I presume this is the truth of the gospel, the identity of Christ. And so the modern errors, I believe, are historicism, biblicism, institutionalism. They're like the original heresies which challenged the early church in the New Testament and among the early church fathers. And I believe they all share in the same problem, that in none of these approaches is God really with us. Is God really Emmanuel? Some begin to teach that Christ was a mere man, adopted by God as a son, adoptionism. He's representative at best of the divine. Jesus is not really Emmanuel in this understanding, God with us. Or in Docetism, which is a key heresy in the New Testament, the early church, it's that God is not really with us in our humanity, that Christ only appeared as a man. He only appeared to be human. And so instead of denying the deity of Christ, the deity is fully acknowledged, but his humanity is a mere likeness and not the reality. And so again, in both instances, 
there is a failure of presence, of God's presence, of Emmanuel, God with us, in his humanity and ours. And the third tendency is more subtle. It acknowledged both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus, but it separated the deity from the humanity. Thus the human Jesus may have experienced death and human passions and emotions, but the deity of Christ is thought to be removed from such things. And so in essence, each of these false teachings is really a denial of the cross. Or in terms of the presence of God, God cannot be said to be present in our pain, in our suffering, and in our death. God is not really Emmanuel, God with us, in these false conceptions. The cure, or the counter to this false teaching, which is really a failed presence of God, it will emphasize either the humanity or deity of Christ or the reality of the resurrection it'll affirm what the false teaching denies but then in each instance this affirmation speaks directly of a specific presence that is that there are various false teachings that are encountered in the New Testament and therefore various emphases so the, the New Testament writers, the apostolic fathers, are challenged by these heretical misidentifications of Christ and the hypothesis of his identity. Who do you say that I am? It's honed to speak directly of God's saving presence in place of a particular form of absence. God is with us and the way in which he is with us is salvific. So for example... The Corinthians, they deny the resurrection, or some among them are denying the resurrection. And they're left then with a kind of vanity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. And so the counterfocus in the book of Corinthians is on the hope of the resurrection. Uh, this translates into a life of resurrection, enabled to defeat the futility of sin. In the example of 1 John, I think they have a different problem. They deny, the, or some are denying the humanity of Christ. And John emphasizes in the epistle the story of Christ in the Gospels. It emphasizes, this book emphasizes his ethical teaching, his human sojourn rather than a kind of abstract spirituality without any ethical responsibility. And so emphasis is on the humanity of Christ. And this entails an emphasis on ethical teaching. As John will put it, we must walk as he walked, to abide in his presence. Paul in 1 Corinthians sums up the gospel. He says, it's Christ dying for our sins, being raised on the third day, and after each phrase, he says, according to the scriptures, and then appearing to the 12 apostles. The identity of Christ is linked to his ongoing presence to the apostles through his death, burial, and resurrection, as this is interpreted in light of the scriptures. So death is the prime obstacle. It's the opposite of life and presence, and Christ defeats death. And this is the basis of his presence a resurrected presence, a very particular kind of presence. This is what Paul delivered to the Corinthians. It's 
as he says in 15.1, this is the understanding by which you stand and by which you are saved. But by denying the bodily resurrection, the Corinthians are turning faith into an, uh, an empty vanity. So Paul describes Christ's resurrection appearances. He enumerates, you know, he said, well, he appeared to 500. He appeared to these people. Extending the experience of the resurrection to the Corinthian believers, which they would nullify. So apart from the resurrection, life and presence are exchanged for death and vanity. Paul says it amounts to being left in sin. With resurrection belief, the sting of death, which is sin, a life of sin, is overcome. You know, this is the phrase I think we often mistranslate. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That is, the reality of the resurrection defeats the reality of death, and this translates into a specific experience. We can experience the presence of God through the hope that we have, the resurrection hope. So Christ's presence is specific to the particulars of his resurrection. He's not present as an abstract generalization. He's not present as a kind of spirit of the universe, but he is the resurrection and the life, an identity that pertains to the one making the identification. Now there's a different emphasis. You know, Paul in Corinthians leaves out the teaching and life of Christ in the Corinthian formula probably because they're denying the resurrection. They have, they, Corinthians have a form of the faith, but they may acknowledge you know, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, his earthly walk. The story of Jesus, however, is not rendered secondary. That is, sometimes I think we focus on Paul's formula and not John's formula that we render the life of Christ secondary, but the resurrection conveys, it includes, the story of Christ, the Gospels, the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul himself says as much in Ephesians 4.20. He says, you must learn Christ. And the way to learn Christ is not learning simply facts and propositions. It may include that. But in 4.21 he says, you learn Christ by laying aside the old self and putting on the new self so that one enacts in their life course Jesus' death and resurrection. That is, the resurrection is an ethic. It's inclusive of the content of his teaching. The story has a particular shape, and the teaching of Jesus, you know, neighbor love, nonviolence, is captured in the manner of his death and resurrection. He laid down his life. He was subordinate to them. And so we do not read the events of Jesus' life and teaching as in a normal biography. You know, if you say, who do you say that I am? We don't simply recount the biography of Jesus, the facts and history. But we recognize the ethical implication, the form of relationship with God and others, which his resurrection implies. If he is raised, 
then we have the obligation to walk as he walked. His story and his life is one we share. And his presence continues in us in his form of life. And this is called resurrection life throughout the New Testament. Paul says in Ephesians 3.16, the believers are strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Where does Christ reside? In the inner self, in the inner person. He says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Who do you say that I am? It's a key question and it's a personal question. You know, John is faced with the docetic teaching that Christ did not come in the flesh. And so he takes a very different tact, a very different emphasis. He's not talking about the bodily resurrection, but he's talking about or emphasizing the bodily or corporeal nature of Jesus. In John 1.1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. Did you hear the language here? We looked at it. We touched it. We saw it. The life was manifest in the flesh. The flesh of the Son. And we saw it. The life was simultaneously with the Father. And it was made manifest to us. We have seen with our eyes. We've heard with our ears. He's emphasizing. Oh, Christ, who is God, appeared in the flesh. And that's the way we encounter God, is through Christ. So Jesus was human and corporeal and not a mere human similitude or likeness. And it's on this basis that we fellowship with God and we fellowship with his son. John emphasizes that we abide in him more than accepting the fact that he abides in the Christian. That is, that's certainly true, but we abide in him. Docetism may have taught a kind of moral license that, oh, it doesn't matter what you do with your body. But John binds the presence of Christ, quote, to keeping his commandments, to walking in the same manner as he walked, and to perfecting the love of God in one's life, quote, by keeping his word. We abide in him as much as he abides in us. Like Paul, John speaks of a rule of faith which renders outside teachers and authorities no needs necessary. That is, where does the authority of Christ take hold? Listen to John 2.27. You have no need for anyone to teach you, as his anointing teaches you all things. Jesus was anointed with the Spirit, and he has anointed his followers with the Spirit. And the Spirit, you know, this is the promise. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. Christ is present, and this presence takes on a particular ethical shape in those who abide in his life, who take on his presence. You know, in the early church, in the midst of persecution, maybe there was a greater need to speak of the fulsomeness of the divine presence. Even in the New Testament, there's the beginnings of per persecution. And so Peter in 2 Peter writes that we become partakers of the divine nature. 
In Athanasius' formula, he writes, He became man so that we might become God. Ignatius of Antioch, who is actually on a forced march to Rome and martyrdom. They're going to put him in the Colosseum. He speaks of Christ being now in the Father, even more plainly visible. He said, Christ ascended to the right hand of God is more plainly visible to me than he was when he walked on the earth. Now this is not a mere earthly presence, but it is an immediate presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer. For Ignatius, he says, Christ is our true life. And this reality is realized, actually for him, in facing the torturous death with Christ. He says, but in fact, he who is near to the sword is near to God. He that is among the wild beasts is in company with God. Provided only he be so in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, I undergo all these things that I may suffer together with him. And he's referencing Romans 8.17. Ignatius imagines in the details of his martyrdom. He's looking forward to his martyrdom because there he will have complete identity with Christ. He's writing to the churches. He says, don't try to stop them. Allow me to go and to be born again into Christ in the Colosseum. Allow me to become food for the wild beasts through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain God. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of the wild beasts, that I may be found to be the pure bread of Christ. So answering the question, who do you say that I am? It entails naming an identity that becomes our identity such that the life and presence of Christ are realized as part of our life course, that our life takes on the shape of Christ. And the conclusion here in Matthew, in verses 18 to 19, he says, Jesus says to Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. I assume it's Peter's confession. It's not the man Peter that is the rock. That we stand on this rock when we make the good confession. That this is the foundation of the church. It is this confession identifying with Christ against which death and Hades shall not prevail. It is this confession that is the key to the kingdom. It is the basis for judgment. Not just divine judgment, but as Paul describes it, for our judgment. He says that in and through this understanding, we ascertain and judge all things. He is the identity that binds together and separates out everything. Who do you say that I am? There is no more important question and no more important answer.
Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.